Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the MedTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karandeep Singh Badwell. Under this episode, I have Eris Lampert, CEO and founder of Pathkeeper, an Israeli-based startup company that has established a solution to combat the high failure rates seen in spinal surgeries. For the past 20 years, Eris has led various R&D projects in the healthcare and aerospace industries. He is also a well-known 3D medical imaging expert and most recently led the development of the ITRO Element Intraoral Scanner, the leading 3D dental scanner in the world. He holds a BSc and MSc in Electrical Engineering, specializing in AI, a BA in Mathematics, and an MBA, all from Technion, Israeli Institute of Technology, and Tel Aviv University, and has published several patents in the field of 3D cameras in medical applications. On this episode, he discusses the low success rate of spinal surgeries, the complexities of such procedures, and how the spine should be seen as a combination of many organs rather than just one, his background as an engineer, his time as an R&D manager at Invisalign, helping to develop their 3D camera, and the setup and infrastructure in Israel for startups, hence why it is deemed Startup Nation, the common mistakes startups make, and the importance of learning sales as an entrepreneur together with the ability to sell your vision, dreams, company, and team. Welcome to the show, Rose. How are you today? Thank you so much. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, more than a pleasure. So why is it that spinal surgeries have a low success rate? What is the cause of these issues and what can be done to prevent them? All right, so in a natural spine surgery is a complex procedure. I mean, you can say that every surgery is complex and have its risks. But I think what's special about spine surgery is that although you think about spine as, as in one organ, the spine is basically a combination of many organs. Just look at the vertebrates. There is a lot of vertebrates in the spine. So you have five in the lumbar, 12 in the thoracic, and seven in the cervical. And each one of those is connected to the other with many muscles and nerves and ligaments. So the spine is not one organ, it's a, com- it's a combination of many organs together that can move and change and, and so on. What can be done to prevent them? So th- there's a lot of challenges about spine uh, spine surgery. And I think the basic stuff is, there's two things maybe. One is that what you plan to do, you actually perform, which we know is a big problem in today's spine surgery. And the second one, are you planning to do the right procedure? So the second one is more about research, but it's also about data collection. And we can talk about it maybe later. But the first one is where we are starting. Let's help the surgeons do what they do. Okay, so as CEO and founder of Pathkeeper, how exactly did you get into that position that you're in today? Right, so I'm I'm an engineer. That's that's my background. I've been an engineer developing products all my life. Uh, I wanted to be in healthcare. I believe that, you know, if investing your daily activities from the morning, you know, sometimes until night, I wanted to do something that would be meaningful and helpful. 
it took me time to, to find a good position in healthcare, and, but I joined Align, Invisalign, 2012, and worked there as the R&D manager for the 3D interval camera that Align was developing at that time in Israel. That brought me to understanding of healthcare, or to be part of this amazing world of medical devices. And Align is a super successful company. The 3D interval camera became a super successful product. And when I decided these things became too big for me, for my taste, for my fun, let's say in the everyday world, I wanted to stay in the medical device world and I wanted to take the experience and the learning that I had got from the line and transform it to somewhere where the clinical value is even more pronounced. Uh, Alliance motto is saving smiles, which is very important, but I wanted to save lives. So in terms of medical devices in Israel, obviously within the EU you had the case of the EU MDR, there's a lot of stricter regulations, a lot of companies are tended to go US first to other markets. How do the Israeli regulations compare uh, in comparison to the EU? Right. So in, in Israel, usually what we do is, is we really, Israel is a small country. So the Israeli market is not really important for any Israeli startup. So as you said, we, with the MDR change, this makes it very easy for us to decide on, on a US first or US focus. We use Israel as a base of operations and that means that we want and can do clinical trials in Israel. We don't really care about sales in Israel. We really more care about having Israel as a base of operations, a home court where we can work with the surgeons, give them the new technology to vet and test and give us feedback. And that's where we want. And for clinical trials, if you have the surgeon's support, it's relatively easy uh, to get IRB approval, uh, especially for our case, which is a relatively low case scenario in the way that we designed the clinical. And in terms of the healthcare system in Israel, how does that compare to the US and EU? Is it insurance-based? Is it state-based? How exactly does it work? Um, probably something in the middle. Um, it's closer to the UK and Europe on the sense that there is like social support. Um, basically, everybody gets the same treatment. You can choose your HMO, that's how we call them in Israel, uh, and the government pays the HMO uh, according to the amount of members. You pay very little. And then the HMOs are upselling, they're selling extra you know, extra care, relatively low cost actually as well, but they upsell their members with a bit of extra care. But basic, and I would say very high level of healthcare, everybody gets in Israel. Okay. So in terms of starting Pathkeeper, what point did you decide that I'm going to put this idea into practical use and I'm actually going to launch a company. And number two is how did you go about that transition of working from a job and then going into entrepreneurship? What 
did that journey look like for you? Mm. Yeah, so what happened, to be honest, was that, you know, like a lot of people that get compensated once every month or, you know, uh, regularly, and Align was a nice company to work for uh, from all aspects. It was not an easy decision uh, to live and start on my own. Um, I think what really, you know, so I started interviewing for other companies. And I met some CEOs and founders of, of medical device startups and interviewed for a CTO position, got a couple of offers. But then I read somewhere uh, a very simple sentence that changed my perspective. It was, if you go and work for a company, for, for another founder, you basically go and make their dreams come true. And I wanted to make my dreams come true. And, and that really influenced me into to, to trying to start my own company. Back then, I did not have any clear idea. I actually had a lot of bad ideas, uh, but I found a part-time job, uh, let's say, uh, to pay the basic uh, accounts and keep, keep my saving a bit longer. So I found a part-time job, and I basically went and started looking for a real problem. As I said, I've been talking to surgeons and to, to healthcare providers and trying to come up with the right problem to solve. And it took time. I think it took me like six months since the day I left the line until I knew I had something that was pursuing for real. So I'm aware that you served in the Israeli Air Force. Do you believe that there were skills or experience that you gained in the Air Force that you was then able to use within your business, help it succeed? Mm -hmm. So because in Israel, everybody's is serving in the army in some ways, and these are usually the people that I compare to that too. So hard to say, but I think the first thing that you get doing army service from any kind is, is some level of trust, I would say. So as, as a junior engineer, I saw that many companies, uh, you don't get a lot of authority or you don't get to do a lot as a junior guy. They tell you, you know, start small, get more experience, etc., etc. And it's very gradual in many ways. But when you go to the army, and specifically when you go to some sort of command training, uh, specifically officer school, in my my uh, my experience, then the army throws a lot of responsibility at you very, very. So you find yourself at a relatively young age handling things that are of a huge matter. It could be life at stake, could be other stuff that are in similar level, dealing with very complex and very important challenges. And I think that gives some level of uh, capability, I would say. I'm not sure that's the right word in English, you know. Uh, feeling that you can you can accomplish stuff. As I said, I'm, I'm looking at juniors and we are hiring a lot of juniors. Um, but in other companies, juniors sometimes get very little to do. So how can you feel you're a successful person that can do anything 
if, if they give you just a little problem to solve. So when I work with juniors now, but also in the army, they throw a lot of big stuff at you. And when you do them, now you feel that you can handle so many other things in, in your life, including uh, you know, starting your own company. So if you go back to the topic of spinal surgeries, what are the typical causes of these spinal issues to the point where people need surgeries? Are they always lifestyle related or would you also say there's also genetic reasons why this might happen as well? So I would not go, I'm very far from being an expert on, on back pain and spinal surgeries, to be honest, I'm just an engineer. Uh, but if you look at, you know, at the information in the internet and reports, you see that back pain become a huge world epidemic. Uh, in fact, I think something like 20% of the Western world people suffer from back pain in such you know, level. And when you, you read that, they're talking about, you're right, about us sitting all day like that, less exercise, obesity, old age as well. You know, people are living longer. So, so the same way that our taste at the older age, starting to crumble our mind so it does our back uh, our knees and probably every part of our bodies and so but back pain i think is probably one of the biggest you know medical community uh, problems in the world today and hopefully mostly most cases back pain doesn't lead to surgery but I can tell you from, from talking to people without any you know, real statistics, I've talked to a lot of people in relatively older ages that suffer from back pain. Back pain uh, interferes with their daily job or the daily lifestyle. But surgeons tell them, you know what? You shouldn't do a spine surgery because it's too risky. And, and I applaud those surgeons for being you know, open and honest, you know, losing them losing money uh, to avoid unnecessary surgeries. But on the other hand, these people are suffering. And if simple, safe surgery would happen and enable them not to suffer from back pain and go back to normal days, normal operation, I think it's a good thing. So what is the problem with the current methods of spinal surgeries? Why is it such a high risk? And what are you doing at Pathkeeper to try and mitigate that risk? Right. So at first, we are starting with a very simple problem. And I think that's, that's the right thing for a startup. You know, I believe that the startup, is, startup by definition is a small company with limited resources. So focus is a key. It doesn't mean that Solving your first problem is the last problem you solve, hopefully not. But you need to start with a relatively simple problem to solve. And the problem that we are solving now is the problem of putting the implants in the right place. So in general, uh, spine surgery, what we call the fusion spine surgery, uh, is where a surgeon creates some sort of scaffolds on the spine, uh, putting screws and rods and creating some sort of support for the vertebra uh, that alleviate pain and maybe help the back be, be straighter and so on. And now, as we said, the spine is a complex organ. There's a lot of vertebra they can move during surgery. 
there's very little visibility because you don't want to expose the bone too much because every exposure creates some sort of damage to the muscles and to the skin. So you want to expose as little as possible and still you want to be as accurate as possible putting those scaffolds. And that's what we are trying to do. Help the surgeon in the most efficient way, put those screws and implants in the most accurate position in space. And because of all the movements, it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. The spine, specifically cervical, is very mobile, very thin, and you have to put those screws very, very accurately for them to help. So that's our number one priority at the moment. So AI and 3D imaging are often misunderstood. If we look at AI, people's perception of it is often what they see in Hollywood movies or TV shows. What would you say are the common misconceptions about AI? Is it going to take over the surgeon's jobs or is this more of an assistance tool? Right. Uh, so one of my mentors and investors told me once that AI is something that you write in PowerPoint and machine learning is what you write in Python. Uh, so AI is a very general term. Um, and I think very few people, if at all, are doing real AI, as you say, in the Hollywood movies. What we are doing is what we call deep learning or machine learning uh, or heuristic algorithms. But yeah, they are part of this AI concept. But Engineering, in my opinion, is a lot of little problems that you solve and a lot of little details. It's not like, you know, this big hammer that you hammer with it and solve everything. So there's a lot of little problems that you need to solve. And all the tools that are under the AI uh, umbrella need to be chosen and used in a very specific way. And what we are doing which is classic you know, machine learning, deep learning algorithms, is basically teaching the computer how does a bone look like and how does a vertebra look like. So by using thousands and thousands of CT scans, uh, we used classic deep learning algorithms and taught them to know where is a vertebra in a CT scan. So our algorithm now, can actually take a city, upload it to the computer, and basically uh, find all the vertebra in the city and analyze them. And once you know that that's a vertebra, now it's very easy to find the vertebra um, parts, like the pedicle, the end plates. Now it's very easy to measure it, uh, to analyze it, and so forth. And these are all classic you know, mathematical tools that you some of them are relatively simple, but the basic challenge is how to define what's a vertebra. And that's where using deep learning algorithms. In terms of your technology, have you looked at veterinary applications or is that something you may be considering in the future? So to be honest, you know, this problem of knowing where you are in, in the body and guidance, is a problem for basically every surgery that you can think of. So I have been asked by surgeons in basically every profession, can you help me? Uh, some of the questions came from startups, some of the questions came from surgeons, 
in orthopedics, very easy to imagine similar problems to do to joint replacement, hip and knee replacement. Similar problem when you have a trauma case, when the bone is breaks and you need to, to put it back together, cranial, and, and so many others. So every, I, I think, you know, again, that's maybe a bit of generalization, but basically in most surgeries, something like what we have can be beneficial. This type of guidance is probably beneficial in practically any surgery, so including veterinary surgery. So I'm aware uh, when we had the conversation online in the past that you spent a few months going around Israel speaking to surgeons to see where there is a need, a way that you met a doctor in Jerusalem as well about intraoral cameras. So when speaking to these surgeons, what would you say were the common problems that they're facing today that they want solutions for? So I'm thinking if maybe there's a listener who maybe wants to start a business in healthcare, what are the issues that these surgeons were talking about that they need support with? Uh, I mean, besides the problem that we are trying to solve? Uh, just problems in general that they were talking about. Yeah. So, what? So, I, I can give you an example, but I don't have any. I mean, if I had, you know, how it is joke with the bus station, why does your bus always come last? Because when your bus number comes, you go up on it and, and you, you drive away. Uh, so, it's always the last one. So in similar way, I, I was for six months, I was talking to surgeons and hearing about problems. Uh, and in, in a way that when I got to the bus, I just took it. So I can, I can tell you how our technology uh, can be helpful for other, other, other aspects. Uh, and I can tell you of a lot of bad ideas or problems that I thought about or discussed with surgeons. But since they were all either the wrong problems or the surgeon was so, you know, such a genius that his peers did not understand his genius, I would not try, I would, it's not that I'm keeping secrets. It, it's really all those problems that they tried to solve before and in the first six months were, were just not, not worth it probably. And that's why I kept it going. So in terms of going into entrepreneurship, what would you say were the things that perhaps came as a shock to you or maybe that you didn't consider when you made that transition? Um, so I think the first thing is, again, I'm an engineer in my background. And one of my first investors told me, uh, you are now a sales guy, salesperson. That's your job. Um, so probably the most important job for a CEO is actually sales. It's not selling you selling a product. I mean, we are just now in the starting to sell products, but you always have to sell your vision, your dream, your company, your team. Uh, so sales uh, is actually the biggest work of CEO and find founder in a startup again. And so that, that was a surprise. Israel is a startup nation and 
So to be honest, I thought it would be easier to raise funds. You, you go into the news and you hear about the successes. So you think everybody can raise money, but it's not easy. It's not easy to raise money uh, because again, you hear about the successes. You don't hear about the, the so many founders that fails to raise money and either are using their own funds or working slowly um, or basically shutting down their operation because they couldn't raise funds. Uh, so fundraising is harder and more complex operation than I expect. On the topic of funds, the conversation we had in the past, you said that with startups, it's very easy for them to go out and spend a lot more money than they need to. Your situation was quite unique in the fact that you didn't spend as much as other companies. How exactly yeah. did you manage your budget correctly? And what are the why is it that startups are spending so much? Is it the availability of the money or is it just the fact that they don't know how to allocate it properly? Yeah, so I think, you know, again, probably these things are going to change now with the new economy situation. But I've talked to, to founders who raised a lot of money and even worked and consulted with some of those startups. And many of them are not an experienced managers or many of them have worked for, uh, for a company and didn't really care. And now, yeah, they have the money, so they spend it. It's, it's, it's the easiest. I mean, if, if uh, an engineer wants to pay X, you pay him X, maybe you pay him X plus 10% to make him happy and can't work for you. Uh, so I think a lot of people just choose, you know, the, the regular, the normal path of operation. Uh, Israel is a very expensive country. Uh, engineers are very expensive because of all the successes, because, you know, all this, so many of the big companies coming to Israel to find engineers. Um, but that's the easiest way, right? Bring people, like you that served you during the army or that you know their university and hire them and work with them. You speak the same language, you have the same cultural background. That's the easiest way to start a company. Is it the best? I don't know. I, I don't think so, but yeah, so many people have been successful in that way, so I, I can't judge. But it didn't feel the right way for me. So on the topic of Israel, and as you mentioned, a startup nation, why is that the case? Is it the education there? Is it the values that people are brought up with? Why is it that Israel is so successful at startups? Yeah, so books have been written about that. And there are people that make their living by going around the world and telling people why Israel is such a successful startup nation. Uh, so I would not dare... Uh, to give you a complete answer in two minutes. Um, but I think in many ways, we don't have a choice. Israel doesn't have you know, natural resources. It's too small to be a big industry company, a country. Uh, we don't have the logistics uh, channels because we are sort of landlocked. I mean, not landlocked, landlocked is the wrong word. Uh, we don't have uh, land access to Europe and we have to go through ships 
so it's it's not nothing is easy for us uh, from all those classic industries. Israel also is a new country, so it's building this you know big plants like in Germany and you and and US and England just doesn't make sense for the Israel economy uh, because of all those needs. So simple. So we have to we have to do something else. I mean. Singapore is an, is an amazing, successful company. They went to fintech. They went to financial. That's similar in concept where you, you can just move around money or something that is uh, you know, non-material. We went to technology. We can ask why technology and not other stuff, but I think we had to go somewhere that is not based on production and logistics and natural resources. And Maybe it just happened to be the So running a company takes up a lot of your time. But what exactly do you do outside of work? Right. So I, I'm a martial arts enthusiast. Uh, for the last 20 something years, I've been training with in Aikido. And so that's my pastime, passion, and hobby. And uh, I enjoy reading, history, philosophy, and fiction, and my family. Okay. So, Eris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. What one piece of advice would you be leaving the listeners with? You know, follow your dreams, I would say. It might be harder than it looks, but I think it's worth it. Thank you very much for your time, Eris. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode 37 of the MedTech Podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Eris, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or visit his company website, the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in future, then feel free to reach out.